Today's episode is going to be exciting, and we hope that you enjoy our interview with Derek Vaness. We are going to explore and talk about research and development tax incentives. Now, with any other uh, tax strategy or financial strategy, we did the best that we could to simplify it, but make sure to consult your tax professional, make sure to consult your financial advisor, make sure to consult with your legal professional to see how this fits into your specific financial situation, as this was just very general information. Um, in nature. And also, don't forget to go to our website, www.weeklywealthpodcast.com, and click on the Contact Us uh, to schedule your 30-minute consultation if you'd like to know what it's like to uh, work with me as your financial advisor. We hope that you enjoy this episode. This is the Weekly Wealth Podcast with certified financial planner, David Chudik where we discuss the wealth building mindsets and tactics that can help you to build and maintain wealth for you, your family, and your business. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the Weekly Wealth Podcast, where we talk about the mindsets, the tactics, and the strategies that help you to build and maintain wealth. And one of the things that my firm does is we try to bring innovative uh, solutions to, um, to some of the financial issues that are uh, going along with your business. And today we have Derek Vaness with us. And, um, and Derek is going to talk a little bit about some research and development tax incentives. But, uh, but hey, Derek, before we get started, uh, tell me a little bit about yourself, maybe professionally and, uh, and personally. Thanks, David. Uh, excited to be here on the show and I appreciate you having me. And, uh, you know, there's a lot to hear, but we'll, we'll keep it short here. I do tax and financial strategy, specifically for small business owners or professional investors. Uh, and we, we have a couple of key things that we focus on. The R&D credits that we're going to be talking about today is a, is a big one of those. But just generally speaking, how to help people keep more of the money that they make and be smarter with it. Uh, there's various strategies there. But, but just kind of passionate about helping people get money out of the way so that they can really focus on doing the work you're here to do as a human being. Like that's, that's the main thing. Um, and you know, some of the work that I'm here to do, of course, is to teach and help people with finance, but I'm also a creative person. I love to, uh, paint and I love to race sailboats, which has been a little bit harder with COVID cause you know, it's kind of a multi-person sport. Um, and I also love to do competitive swing dancing, which is also a close contact sport. So a lot of my ho hobbies have been pushed aside this past year, and I'm, I'm pretty excited to get back to those hopefully very soon, but, uh, yeah, yeah really just love connecting with people. That's my thing. Yeah. It's interesting what you said about getting money out of the way, because I've always kind of thought that money does not solve the world's problems, but lack of money or, or improper handling of money certainly creates problems for sure. I've seen that a hundred percent myself. I think of money as like a magnifying glass in the sense that it doesn't make you better or worse. It just makes you more of whatever you are. So if you're kind of a jerk, you just can be a bigger jerk. If you're kind of a good person, you can be a more of a good person. And uh, yeah, and I've definitely gone through some periods in my life following the 2008 collapse where I didn't have a lot of money. And it just creates a lot of extra stress, a lot of extra drama, a lot of extra things that you have to deal with that, that make it harder and more complicated to be successful. So I 100% agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's not really even necessarily related to income because I've had some very high earning clients that were pretty darn miserable because they weren't handling things uh, the right way for sure. So, 
Well, yep. good deal. Well, we're talking about research and development tax incentives today. And to be honest, that doesn't even sound like English. So I would love if you just kind of started from the <laughs> beginning and, and explain this to us like we're, 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 we're uh, five-year-olds on what research and uh, development tax incentives are and, and how they might benefit us. Okay, good. Well, you know, on the tail of the recent election, like I think we all are clear on, on one thing. The government wants to help our country grow and flourish and succeed, right? And one of the primary ways that they do that with the government is they give us tax breaks, tax write-offs, tax incentives, because they know that if you don't have to pay money, like people will do more of the thing that makes it so they don't have to pay money, right? So they do that. They incentivize us with buying a house because when we buy houses, we reinvest in our neighborhood and we have pride of ownership. And when we have kids, they give us tax breaks there partially because, you know, taking care of kids is a full-time job on its own, but, but they know that people have families, like it's good for our country. It's good for the growth of our country and keeps us young. And so they also want to incentivize businesses being successful. And where this R&D tax credit came from was uh, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, the United States was dominating the auto industry across the world, right? We had all the car all the old cars, they're all American made. They're the Chevys, they're the GMCs, the, the Dodges, Plymouths, that kind of stuff. Um, but as we got into the 80s, that shifted. And the companies that were over in Japan had figured out how to make cars cheaper and faster and, and in many ways better, right? The Toyotas, the Nissans, which was Datsun back then, the Hondas. And obviously these are still very prevalent companies. So they were doing a great job. But the U.S. said, hey, you know, we really want to maintain our dominance in this industry. So we need to figure out a way to help out our American companies with this. And so we're going to incentivize them being innovative, the trying new stuff, taking and, and tweaking things, experimenting, that kind of thing. And they called it research and development credits, right? And, now, and did this start for like the Fords and the Chevys, these huge companies back in the 80s? It did. That's primarily where they were focused. They didn't just make it automotive industry specific, but that's really what prompted it, right? That was the pain point that they said, hey, across the board, we want to stimulate innovation, but these companies in particular, like, you know, that's the, the whole uh, backbone of the, the Midwest. We want to support these com companies. So that was kind of the, the straw that broke the camel's back. And so they put these in place to help those companies. And essentially what it is, is it's a refund on dollars that you spend doing qualified research activities that would help innovate or, or customize or make things better or try something new. Um, and that, of course, over time evolved, right? And, and traditionally, they had to re-ratify these credits every single year because when they were first brought in, it was a temporary thing. Then they re-ratified them and re-ratified. And over the years, they did that. But that made it hard if you weren't a big company to keep up with all the changes happening, right? Because Things would change from year to year. It wasn't part of what typical CPAs did. It required a lot of documentation. So it wasn't really accessible to smaller companies. It was mostly these big behemoths that had financial teams that could focus on this. And there was enough money on the table that they could have a couple of people that that's all they did for these big companies. Well, that was great for them. Not so great for the little guy. So along comes 2007 and Congress had realized that a lot of the smaller businesses weren't taking advantage of these credits. And they wanted to be able to extend that down the line because small businesses are, you know, sort of the real backbone of our country. Big companies matter too, but small companies 
are the ones that really struggle in a lot of cases and don't have some of that additional support. So they wanted to make that more palatable and they came up with uh, a second way to calculate these credits. And this is important because they were trying to get it to the little guy, right? So it's called the alternative simplified method. And it doesn't require so much documentation. It's kind of like a no doc loan. Like you don't get as good an interest rate, but you also don't have to have, you know, put every single piece of paper out there in the world for them to, to review. So that made it so it was potentially a lot more accessible to small business owners, but it was still kind of hard because CPAs who serve smaller firms just didn't understand it. And so a couple of years later, 2015, the, the government decided, you know what, we we're re-ratifying these credits every single year. Let's make them permanent. And that was significant because now uh, smaller firms that serve smaller businesses could go in, they could learn the tax code and not have to relearn it every single year and reinvent the wheel. So, they, so it made it more accessible with the alternative simplified method. And now firms that can specialize in this and get so good at it that it becomes cost efficient. Because the problem in the past was you could qualify for the credits, but to do all the documentation and to pay your CPA to do all the legwork and everything was going to cost you more than it made you. So starting in 2015, these really became much more widespread, much more available to the the average business owner and started rolling out. And we've seen over the last three or four years, because it took people a year or two to really figure that out and see the opportunity like, hey, this applies to a lot of businesses. Let's get the word out. So that really started taking root in 2016, 17. And in the last couple of years, it's been spreading like wildfire. I can even say a couple of years ago when I talked to clients, nobody had heard of it. And in the last year, I've run into maybe 10% of clients have heard of it. So it's definitely getting out there. And my guess is in the next five years, most small businesses will hopefully be applying for this stuff, but they will have missed out on 10 good years of being able to get, you know, refunds from the government for the work you're already doing. So this is, this is something we definitely want people to know. And that, that's kind of where it came from. Uh, I know you've got some more questions for me, but you know, there, if you're in any of these specific industries where it applies and it applies to a lot more than you think, it's definitely something you should consider because statistically 95% of businesses that could qualify are not applying. So most, most people aren't, they're just missing this. Yeah. So it, it makes it uh, on the surface, it makes a ton of sense, right? We're getting killed in the automotive industry, which employs millions and millions of people. So let's give the huge automakers some, some major money to help them to basically make better cars. That'll sell more, which will help the economy. Yeah. Now, how does that translate into you know, I'm in Seneca, South Carolina. I'm in Oconee yeah. County. Um, yeah. You know, what type of businesses in my little county potentially might be able to benefit from this uh, kind of new, more efficient uh, version of the research and development tax credits? Yeah. So this is what's exciting is it's continuing to expand and literally month by month, we're finding more and more industries that qualify. But I can give you a bunch where we can just drive it right down the middle of the fairway, right? The really obvious ones are Anything that's medical, right? So doctors, dentists, chiropractors, optometrists, veterinarians, anything that like you're using so much science. There's no like hard, fast cookie cutter approach. You have to go in, you have to test, you have to customize. And these are really the hallmarks of any, anybody who's customizing anything or has to individualize treatments or structures or whatever. So anything medical, anything that involves engineering. So this could be construction, um, any kind of structures that you're having to create or, or fortify, 
Um, but if it, if it requires architecture or, or structural calculations, those are all home runs. Anything that's in technology that requires um, software development, right? If you're creating custom code or even taking an off the shelf piece of software and making it better for your particular business or for, for an industry, all of that kind of work would qualify. Um, also, I found, and this is kind of, this isn't an industry as much as it is a group of businesses, um, franchises are actually really great because a lot of them, the, the corporate headquarters is doing a ton of research, whether it's a fitness company and they're figuring out like all the exercise science that makes for better workouts for their people or the technology that goes into scheduling people and creating customer interface and engagement and even all the stuff that goes on tablets when people check in and tracks all the results and all of that kind of stuff. Um, all of those kinds of fees that the franchisee is paying to the corporate headquarters to be done, a lot of those qualify. So we've we found some really good success, even with businesses that on the ground floor don't appear to have a lot of uh, research and development. Like we did a waxing salon, you know, the, somebody owned a, a couple of locations of a waxing salon and they were getting about $20,000 per salon over a three-year look back. So it was like, $7,000 per year per location over the past three years. So it added up to a lot of money for this particular one. And, you know, every business is going to be different, but I, I guess what I'm saying is if you're a franchise and you don't do anything super customized, don't, don't rule yourself out. Um, and then uh, manufacturing is a huge one. Manufacturers, everything they do, they're trying to make things faster, cheaper, better. They're always innovating. They're trying new materials. They're trying new techniques, buying new equipment. Um, and there's just so much happening there. It's, you know, it's technology just in a different vein. So I think those are like the super home run industries, but I mean, I've done it for pest control companies. I had a company that like their whole specialty is removing bats from people's houses and from commercial buildings. They go in and they create these devices that are one-way doors and they clean up guano and have to use chemicals and all this stuff. And they got a great refund too. So every day, we're finding new companies that qualify, you know, on, on the franchise level, one that surprised me was uh, Chick-fil-A. Like I wouldn't have thought that there would be a bunch there, but apparently they're doing a bunch of research on, you know, food science and chemicals and preservatives. How about just efficiency, flavors. how to get people in and out of the drive-through in 25 seconds, right? I mean. Sure. All of that stuff is happening or like Keller Williams did a huge, uh, reboot on all of their software. So all of the brokers, like the people who pay franchise fees, not all the agents are eligible for that as well. There's just a ton of stuff out there that you're like, holy cow, this applies. I didn't realize all this research was being done, but yeah, the, the research development credits apply to a lot more than you think. Cause it's, it's kind of like the law or a lot of other tax code. It's open to interpretation. And this is stuff the government wants you to do. They want you to get this money back. They want you to do the activity. So it's not like you're trying to get through some loophole here. You're really doing the things they want you to do. You may as well get the money back so you can do more of it. At least that's their motivation. So what size business would this begin to make sense for? Um, you know, if, if I'm a one-man show, I mean, does it make sense for me? Do I need, you know, $50 million in payroll? Do I need a couple hundred thousand? I mean, what, what type of business does this work for? Great question. So I would say a couple of, of key things or benchmarks that you can think about. Um, First of all, you can only get these credits back if you've paid taxes in. There is a way to get credits and carry them forward. But generally speaking, for most people, I would say you want to be paying as a bare, bare minimum at least $10,000 a year in taxes because that gives us at least thirty grand to kind of 
get back for you. And the companies, the CPAs that do the work for this, there's kind of a minimum threshold of around fifteen to twenty thousand dollars. If it's less than that, then their costs get too high and they don't make enough money. So I'd say if you're paying at least ten thousand dollars a year in taxes for the last three years, and then also from a payroll or money running through the business standpoint, I would say you probably want to have a payroll of at least three hundred and fifty or $400,000 running through the business, or if you use contractors or other things, I'd say at least a half million dollars running through the business. If you're less than that, what happens is they're just, even if you're doing the right activity, there's not enough volume to kind of get us to that minimum threshold. So, so if you're over $500,000 and you're based in some sort of science and you're paying some taxes, you know, at least 10 grand a year, there's, there's probably something there. Wow, no, that's, that's, uh, that's amazing. So let's say, you know, I kind of fit those, uh, I fit those qualifications, but I mean, this, the government's just going to give me free money is what you're telling me. I mean, how, how is that, you know, the, the too good to be true factor. And also, I mean, I don't want the government looking at my tax return a second time. Maybe, maybe they find something, maybe it puts me at a higher, you know, just potential for audit because business owners are all scared to death of audits. Even if you're doing everything all the right way there, you know, there are some deductions that are up to interpretation. And so, sure. you know, I mean, what do you say about that? The too good to be true. And, and are you going to get audited? Is it going to create more headaches than it's worth? Yeah. So, so the short answer on the audits is you can be audited anytime for anything. So that, that is a possibility, but we have not seen any statistical difference. Like there's literally a tiered system on what the IRS is looking at for like red flags and R&D credits isn't even on any of those tiers. It's not something that they're scrutinizing real heavily. Um, and we statistically, it's been like one-tenth of 1% higher. So it's, and that's not even like, like that could just be luck, right? On how many people got surveyed. So really it does not increase your, your, your risk of audit. Um, if you're doing something really shady or your books are all screwed up and it's going to make you not sleep at night. Maybe it's not a good trade for you, but if you've got a professional who's doing your books, it's a no brainer, right? Now the too good to be true thing makes sense, except for when you think about, I have to live in a house and I get to write off the interest and depreciate it. Is that too good to be true? Well, if you never knew it existed, you would think so, right? Oh, I get, I want to have kids in a family, but I get to write off, you know, I get a tax credit for my kids. Is that too good to be true? Well, if you didn't know it and someone said, hey, you're going to do this thing anyway and you get money for it. So it's the same kind of thing. You just didn't know about it. It's like, hey, I'm experimenting. I'm taking risk with my business. We're trying new stuff. Sure, we're doing it in pursuit of profit and to take care of our, our customers and do a better job. But it's what the government wants us to do. So it's, it's only too good to be true because you haven't heard of it before. The fact is you are taking risk and you will lose money on some of these things that you try. So the government wants to help you catch just a little bit. They're not even reimbursing all the risk, right? They're just giving you a little bit. So it, it really isn't too good to be true, but it can feel that way because it's kind of like money that you earned that you just weren't aware that you'd earn. You still worked hard for it. You just didn't know it was there, right? So it, it really isn't too good to be true. And, and that kind of comes from the question, David, of like, why isn't my CPA doing this already? And the best answer I have for that is, twofold. One is there's always good and not so good financial professionals, right? Some continue to learn and get better. Some graduate with a degree and, and never learn anything again, except for what they have to for their continuing education credits. So 
there are a ton of real, but there are also a ton of really good tax professionals and CPAs out there that don't know about this because it's brand new. It's really only been in the past couple of years. There's been a lot for CPAs to pay attention to with the 2017 changes and all the CARES Act and then the, the new CARES, you know, part two in, in uh, December. So they've really had their hands full. And this is quite a specialization. Honestly, outside of research and development credit, there's a ton of other credits out there too. And most of them don't know about those. Hiring credits, employee retention credits, sales and use tax credits, a ton of other stuff. And the tax codes like as thick as the Harry Potter books, right? And if, mm-hmm. you, if you've read those, you, you know it takes months to do that. Imagine doing that with tax code and then looking at all the interpretation of all that language. It's a vast, vast world out there. So the credit part of it is just something people hadn't paid attention to because before 2015, it really wasn't applicable. Like it, it was too costly and it changed all the time. So anybody who looked at it pre-2015, it didn't make sense. And once you've looked at that, if you're a CPA, why would you go back and check that every year? <laughs> right. right, right, right. But so, I mean, the whole concept so it's, makes it's sense. It's the same kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, the better businesses do, the more the more that businesses research, the more they're going to improve, the more competitive they'll be, the more money they'll make, the more the owners will pay income taxes, the more yep. people that'll have jobs that'll pay income taxes. So, so yep. it definitely, absolutely... Um, absolutely makes sense for sure. And as far as the CPAs goes, I mean, the CPAs of the world are all good people. Um, The tax preparers are good people. But in many cases, what they do is they prepare your return and tell you what you owe from last year. But, you know, they're not actively saying this is what you can do this year so that when we cross into next year and your tax uh, return is done, you might be really happy. So, so they, they'll prepare incredibly great returns, but you know, not always do they offer proactive advice. And and to be totally honest, that's what a financial advisor does, right? I mean, a financial advisor is giving advice on how to, um, how to manage your investments, how to manage your tax situation, how to manage your estate and all those things. And then, you know, the, a good mm-hmm. financial advisor will work with your CPA, but often it's the financial advisor who's bringing the, um, the ideas for sure. So we, right. we do that a lot. Yeah. Because I'm, yeah. I'm a big believer in being proactive. So you're hundred percent right. And I, I kind of distinguish it. Do you have a tax advisor or do you have a tax recorder? And if they're not bringing stuff to the table, you know, you either need to bring in a, you know, a wealth strategist or tax strategist, financial advisor, someone, or you need to find a CPA who really makes that a priority. So let's say, I don't know, let's say I own a David's machine shop um, here in Oconee County, right? And uh-huh. um, we're making some some parts that go onto door handles that uh, we're selling to the big automotive um, companies. And I mean, I've worked hard. I've, I have 10 employees and I have a $500,000 payroll. Okay. So, you know, we're a big company. Lots of people would love to be there, but other companies would say that's, you know, we have 50 million in payroll. Can these research and development tax incentives help me? And and maybe just, and I know it's, it's very complicated. There's a lot that goes into it, but maybe we could give just some like ballpark numbers to kind of show what might happen for a $500,000 company that's in the manufacturing uh, business. Sure. Sure. Yeah. We can give just kind of a general overview, right? So don't sure. hold me to these numbers and, and quotes and all that stuff because what you do and how you do it matters. But let's just say, like you said, you got $500,000 worth of payroll. And let's say that 40% of, of the activity that your people are doing in the 
the, the shop because the, the admin up front, you know, taking phone calls and that kind of thing probably isn't doing any. And then the engineers in the back room are probably doing 90% research. And when we average it all out, which is kind of how this, um, this no doc alternative simplified method sort of works, uh, let's say it's 40% of the activity. So, so does 40- the IRS kind of give a range? Like, obviously I couldn't say that 99% of my, my payroll is on research, right? No, yes. So there, there is some software that the CPAs use when they're figuring this out that integrates with the IRS system and, and they're kind of proprietary and kind of hide that. It's like the special sauce, right? In the back, back room, but it does give them some guardrails. So you can't go in with, uh, you know, a computer sales shop and say 100% of what we do is research and development. They're going to say, you just resell computers. Like there's no way that's going to happen. Nobody can really do 100%. Even if you're like a full-on engineering firm and all we do is structural calculations, like you still got to have meetings, you still got to do paperwork sure. and all of that kind of stuff, right? So, yeah, so there are some guardrails put in place. And if you make an estimate that's too high, they'll, they'll ratchet it down a little bit to put you in the right place because they, you know, they want to help you comply. They're the professionals. You're just doing your best. So uh, let's say 40% of that payroll. So 40% of $500,000 worth of payroll is $200,000. And then there's a multiplier. And that multiplier uh, can range a little bit depending on industry and what you do between five and 8%. So let's call it 6%. So 6% of 200,000 is $12,000. So you'd be eligible for a $12,000 refund that year. And if you've been paying taxes the last couple of years, it could be 12,000 per year. So you might be eligible to get $36,000 back. Now there's other things with contractors and materials and other stuff that comes into this, but payroll is one of the, the big ones. And so that's why we say you want to have at least a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of payroll because not all of it's going to be qualified activity and, and the multiplier is not that big, right? That too good to be too true. It's not like they're giving you 50% of the money back. It's it's a pretty small percentage. Sure. But I mean, if there's 36, 30, $40,000 waiting there, why not? Right. Um, oh, yeah. And then let's say I have 5 million in payroll, you know, we're probably just roughly double, you know, multiplying that by 10. Right. I mean, just because yep. uh, the, the factors and everything. So, yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, what's the process? Um, you know, we've talked about the theory and it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, when you and I first spoke, I was like, yeah, this dude is scamming me with something that's going to get me thrown in jail and, um, you know, going to show up on Dateline NBC with some tax fraud. And, uh, but now, I mean, it really does make sense. So like, how would somebody do this? I mean, who does it? Um, you know, just talk mechanically what happens. Yeah. So there, there are companies out there that do it. There's not very many yet. I would guess in the next five to 10 years, you'll see more and more, but we represent a couple of firms, just like I represent insurance companies. I also represent these firms. And so we have some paperwork. It's kind of like an application. They call it a business qualification form. And it just talks, it's just a series of questions. How old's the business? How many employees? What's your address? What do you do? Um, does it check a couple of boxes that you have to check? There's something called the four-part test, and we won't dive too deep into that today. But does it check those boxes? And then we have a series of questions around, um, does your company do this? Does your company do that? Does your company do this third thing? And it gives the CPA places to look and a better understanding of like the internal workings and the mechanisms of what you do in your business. And these might be questions like, have you changed any internal software or e-commerce software in your business? Have you updated your website? Um, 
do you manufacture molds, dyes, jigs, or other tools, right? And a bunch of specific questions. Some of them apply to some industries. Some of them are very general, but there's about 30 questions like that that allow us to identify a bunch of the activities within the business. Truth be told, the whole process probably takes 30 minutes. And then we send that over to the, over to the CPAs along with your last three years business and personal tax returns. Sometimes people ask why both, why not one or the other? So the credits actually happen on the business level, but then they roll through. And if you personally pay taxes, which everything but a C corp, you're gonna personally pay those taxes. They need to look at that. I did have a dentist. He made $900,000 in his business, but he also had a million dollar loss in a farming operation. And so his net was negative $100,000. He didn't pay any taxes, so he wasn't eligible for credits. And that's why- they So th- that's one that. of the two good to be true issues, right? I mean, this guy, this guy just didn't qualify because he worked the system in another way, which is fine. Presumably he didn't break yeah. any laws, but right. um, you know, it didn't work for him. It, exactly. And so, and that's fine. But like, that's why I say, if you're paying the taxes, if you're not paying taxes, even if you're making money and just losing, losing taxes on paper- or not paying taxes on paper due to depreciation or other kinds of things, then, you know, maybe this isn't for you right now, but I would just pay attention, be aware that it's out there so that you can reach out in the future as it goes. And then once we do a three-year assessment, we get a free estimate, right, from the firm. At this point, you're not obligated to anything, but if you decide you want to move forward, then they, they charge a portion. Um, I work with a bunch of firms and they, they vary, but most of them are about a third of what they find they take as the fee. Um, they do all the work up front. You pay half the fee at the time that, uh, that the filing is ready. And then the other half, when you get your checks back from the IRS. And so you're not really out a whole lot of money, but I will, I will say the IRS is a little bit slow right now, just because of they've been doing stimulus checks and they shut down for four months last year and all the other stuff. So their workload is pretty heavy, but you know, you wouldn't want to do this on your last dollar. But if you, you know, if you're, can set aside a couple of bucks to file this and get that money coming back. Then you get to pay the back end fee out of those checks. It's uh, it's pretty nice when you get a big fat check from the IRS and know that you get to keep it. Hey, money's good. Money from the IRS is even better. So, well, awesome. Well, this, you know, this has been a really good 30,000 foot level discussion of research and development uh, tax incentives. You know, it's obvious nothing's ever quite as simple as, as a 20, 30 minute podcast, but I just found sure. this fascinating. And, and I've been in, in the financial planning business a long time. And there's just, you know, th- there's always an innovative solution potentially out there for anybody. So if, if any of our listeners would like to discuss this with you, you know, what's their first step? How would they do that? Yeah, I'll just keep it really simple. You can just go to biglifefinancial.com. And up in the right-hand corner, there's a button that says work with us. We do have a page there that talks about, you know, the tax incentives and has a bunch of other articles you can read and stuff. But if you go to the top right corner, click the button that says work with us, uh, you can just schedule directly on my calendar and we will uh, answer any questions and help you get started if it makes sense for you. But it's, it's pretty straightforward. Yeah. Awesome. I love it. Well, Derek, I've, I've enjoyed this. This has been um, interesting for me. Um, I can honestly think of a few clients uh, and, and, and friends, honestly, where this could potentially benefit. So uh, this may be in the future, but I appreciate your time. I appreciate the uh, knowledge and, and maybe at some point uh, we can have you on again to talk about one of the uh, other tools in your toolbox. 
The information contained herein, including but not limited to research, market valuations, calculations, estimates, and other material obtained from Parallel Financial and other sources are believed to be reliable. However, Parallel Financial does not warrant its accuracy or completedness. The materials are provided for informational purposes only. It should not be used or construed as an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security. Past performance is not indicative of future results.